The maneuvers of spring have long gone, my children. What scalded malfeasance the summer had heard went ahead to tend boilers and basements and dens. The frost has come now, passing over the lichen leaves, chilling deeply the bones of the house. We took up long eyes and pursued the deceit, some scraping blood from wayward stones, saw footprints to change in their outline and gait. Some stole ropes of derangement from doomed paths, surveyed, sewed document trees for to propagate proof. Some whispering vows for no cavernous ears, and some of the same to shout bounds on phantasms. Mass oracles deter with their timely assessments, long watchers with count on the parallel stairs. We continue to pass the throngs of macro-villagers, painted in angry, gaudy colors of glue, splashing together to find the next moment when their wave incredulities twixt Nemo's mask and the panic-struck, undiscomfortable kid. The wax-filled eyes keep their distance and flash in these iron-cold, speckled eggshell days. Our tracings and their pace designed to one uncommon spot, the infinitesimal meadow where the earth has turned to rot, a line wrapped out from entering, the millions waiting there, the vacant, molding castle with the halls and stairways bare the wells and dungeons smoking with a dense and sulfurous air. Dear friends, Kolechats, no more quiet days for us. Gird your frock and powder your mandibles as we visit upon a call from the past, flung about us on cindering plains in the bluster around. Our scattered band of friends of yore, the right-esteemed Silica Gel, joins us tonight in the frightful wake of their prescient album May Day, curated and released by Sweet Wreath Records. As we stated in their newsletter number five, this record is a caterwauling from a long-displaced subconscious, an elegant and haunting construction that creaks with all the psychic weight we've been feeling ourselves to be bearing. Silica Gel has offered us a medieval meal upon a greasy newspaper spoon, a prepackaged euphemistic Eucharist for their modern festival from before the future. Writer Stephen McClurg had a more conventional take. The sounds stretching back to pre-Renaissance and into the future of mixed electronic and acoustic music, I couldn't ask for a more perfect experience than Silica Gel's May Day. I thought of Holter writing a folk horror score, which I hope they take as a compliment. We're delighted to join them in a bit of talk taken in the days before the election, in the giddy hovering between tossing waves, as the undertow crept beneath us. However, no amount of discussion could bring this record a brighter key than its own inner light.
the experience it contains and the context laid out in its lyric book is a feast enough to be heard and attended to in your own internal castle. We are pleased to send these samples out across the wet work to draw you inside. Silica gel will speak for itself soonest. Eminently, we take you to their previous noises for considering in due preparation for our time tonight. It takes only ten seconds for a mother cuckoo to swoop down upon a strange nest and to drop her alien egg. Some unsuspecting warbler or pipit is shoved away, and before it crashes unborn to the ground, the parasite mother is gone from sight. When daisies pied and violets blue, and lady smocks all silver white, and cuckoo buds of yellow hue do paint the meadows with delight, the cuckoo then on every tree mocks married men, for thus sings he Cuckoo, 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 O word of fear, unpleasant to those creeping ears. Sing cool.
As Silica singer Laura Thomas explains, much of the material on May Day is taken from medieval sources, such as the topical Le Roman de Favelle, a 14th century satire of old France, which I will summarize thus from a source. The Roman de Favelle is a 14th century French allegorical verse romance of satirical bent, generally attributed to Gervais Dubout, a clerk at the French royal chancery which features Favelle, a fallow-colored horse who rises to prominence in the French royal court, and through him satirizes the self-serving hedonism and hypocrisy of men, and the excesses of the ruling estates, both secular and ecclesiastical. The anti-hero's name can be broken down to mean false veil, and also forms an acrostic, F-A-V-V-E-L, with the letters standing for the human vices, flattery, avarice, vileness, variability or fickleness, envy, and laxity. Fauvel comes from the color of its coat, which is muddy beige or fallow-colored, and symbolic of vanity. Fauvel, though he is a horse, no longer resides in a stable, but is set up in a grand house, the royal palace, in fact, by the grace of Dame Fortune, the goddess of fate. He changes his residence to suit his needs, and has a custom manager and hayrack built. In his toilet, he has those from the religious order stroking him to make sure no dung can remain on him. Church and secular leaders, both far and wide, make pilgrimages to see him, and to bow to him in servitude. They condescend to brush and clean Favel from his tonsured head to tail. These fawning groomers are said to curry Favel in the original phrasing of the work, and this is where the English expression curry favor has originated, corrupted from the earlier form curry Favel. Favel travels to Macrocosmos and asks Dame Fortune for her hand in marriage. She denies him, but in her stead she proposes he wed Lady Vainglory. Fauvel agrees, and the wedding takes place, with such guests present as flirtation, adultery, carnal lust, and Venus, in a technique similar to that of the morality plays of the 15th and 16th centuries. Finally, Dame Fortune reveals that Fauvel's role in the world is to give birth to more iniquitous rulers like himself, and to be a harbinger of the Antichrist. Why do the nations and peoples rage? Because never have so many eyes seen such monstrosities. Nor have old men and the young in the ages of the world heard of such wars as they wage, and of what rulers and judges seek for themselves. These, I say, bring in Fauvel and his followers. Bye.
I have a quick note before we get started. Our interview is somewhat a revolving door. People had to come and go. I speak first to vocalist Lauren Jones before adding in her counterpart, Laura Thomas, and electronicist and guitarist Joel Nelson over video chat. We are attended throughout by producer and musician Jasper Lee, who is the mind behind Sweet Wreath Records, and a major contributor to the conception of May Day. Links to these folks and their pursuits in the description of this episode and at theearthhotel.org. Let us have it begun again. With virtue is dying, vice is alive.
this wieldy unmourning with the COVID testing clinic right across the street. Right. There's a joie de vivre in the outdoor <laughs> bioware. UAB has an ongoing loop. I think it's like 91.2 or something of COVID testing instructions for some reason oh, at any really? time of day. Tune in at two o'clock in the morning when the willies hit you. Pull up to the designated testing area and a, a testing official will come and knock at your window and ask to swab your insides. Oh my Don't god. Don't open your window when they come. Uh that's our world. Good stuff. So with the with the strange gray morning and the energy dump, you know, the tsunami, all the water has to come out. A personal warning system, if you're on a beach and all the water disappears, you're just gonna be in a tsunami soon. There's nothing you can really you don't have time to pack up your mask swimmies and get out of there, but just so you know, a tsunami's coming when all the water disappears. So that's what I feel like we've all been dealing with the last uh-huh. maybe week. It seemed like the last two weeks we got a, a brief reprieve. It's all beginning yeah, again. I like that analogy because that's definitely how this whole thing feels is like very much in waves. Yeah, all that to say that set a mood very well for my latest listening of what Jasper sent me. You want to talk about your experience in music and how uh, just a little bit of your background and training? Because the voices are precise characters in this. Yeah. I studied voice with Laura, our other singer. We both were voice majors at the University of Montevallo, you know, practicing classical voice in the practice rooms and doing the whole recital class thing and wearing fancy dresses and yeah, we also met Joel there in the practice rooms, practicing his guitar. So I come from classical training as a young undergrad. <laughs> Meeting Joel kind of sparked our curiosity for this kind of music because he was always into exploring like improvised music and we would all hang out and talk about how we wanted things to be different outside of the classical realm and how it was so stiff and boring. Joel would always be like, you want to do this weird thing with me? And then we would <laughs> join in and <laughs> do all these crazy projects. Yeah, that, that fella Joel really has a dense musical gravitational well. Yeah, I don't know. I was just always really like attracted to making music with him because... I feel like I was good at like piggybacking on that and be like, yeah, like let's try it. So it was cool to be like in a friendship with like him and Laura where we were all kind of like open to trying different things out with music. I feel like we all came from very different viewpoints and that's what I like about it is that they all kind of mesh in this way. We all kind of went our separate ways. I studied voice. I went to grad school. Yeah, we both, me and Laura both studied voice, and then she went to, uh, she went down like the early music route, which is kind of what inspired this. And then I was studying like kind of like contemporary voice techniques at UCSD in San Diego. So, so that, yeah. that early music was, if I understand it, mostly exclusively voice and usually single lines, like single melodies that would be monophony. Yeah, like a lot of them are single melodies that Laura brought to us. And there were some duets, like the Harp of Melody, that one was like a duet, which was interesting because it was laid out in a sort of canon. So one person would start and then the second person had to join in. It was a really difficult melody too. Laura kind of nailed it. <laughs> it was like uh, these really kind of complex rhythms are sort of clashing with each other in a way. 
So was this stuff recorded live in the room, or was it piecemeal assembled? With that one, we recorded live. Yeah, most of the stuff we did was live until we weren't together. We would practice and like record it in Jasper's house. They were all live recordings except for Pan Pan Medico. Yeah. The breakout hit. I kept getting the sponsored Pan Pan Medico ad. And that was <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It showed up for several well, days at a time. Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> Being around this time of year, I know it's not a spooky record, but as we were talking about before in, in the time that we're in, it is definitely Harken to the sky, ye splitting moon face. Not good stuff, Gorge. <laughs> Bad times. Um, scary music. Yeah. Coming upon that, not knowing raw in the wild through that ad would have been quite an experience for people, I think. Mm -hmm. I hope that reached some folks. Yeah. yeah, that's good to know. I guess that that was an experiment in its own. I mean, I've never done anything like that, trying to make an ad for music, because there is definitely a visual element to this music, and mm -hmm. the way I work is sort of in between music and film, and so some of this music just has a really cinematic quality to it, the way it sonically flows and so making some kind of visual for it to like try to grab people's attention just makes sense to do mm -hmm. two things that definitely struck me i think i heard pan pan medico the first the attention to detail in the voices there are places where the tuning comes in and out yeah you know? uh, and that seems in really precise ways you get a little bit of up and down around where the it, it makes more sense in context i guess but the really precise movement of the voices singing these pure melodies in this kind of pure technique and like you said the cinematic kind of pacing it's so well organized there's some kind of gorgeous proportion to it where nothing happens too many times mm. and nothing comes too soon you know oh nice yeah no, I'm interested in that concept of tuning, too. That was something I sort of explored. And I think that's where the vocal techniques and how there was sort of this exploration of tuning with some of this early music is based in like the church. And so like the church kind of created this like, you know, pure form of like, literally what we know of tuning now. And I love deconstructing that. And that was kind of something I went through in grad school too, was like focusing on how voice can defy the expectation of classical technique or, yeah, I think that's really cool. In my opinion, when I heard this, like after you had worked on it and like mastered it, my mind was blown because like we had created the structure and I always thought it was really cool, but I feel like Jasper like worked so much magic with that and like created this structure like it just all came together in this really magical way so I feel like you like up the ante <laughs> <laughs> I saw yeah. a lot of potential in it yeah and I wanted it just to go further creating a flow is sort of what I do I mm -hmm. think is just hearing where like you could take this idea and go a few more steps in a certain direction or organizing all the pieces into some sort of thing like where, where we ended up with that has like they're all related but there's definite uh, like a movement through it that's what I get really excited about is hearing variations on a on a theme or having it be 
something that, like Joel said, like kind of takes you on a journey a little bit. It's not like the same sound the entire time. You're like in the same universe, but you're traveling through and to some different areas within that aesthetic. By the time you get done listening to the entire thing, it does feel like you've gone somewhere. That's what I try to tune into is is creating that kind of experience so that like if you really listen and like sit down and just like let it like happen to you like it will do something yeah there are a lot of places in the world of this there aren't a ton of instruments on it yeah it's limited the trio of laura and lauren and joel is just voice and electronic processing computer tones basically when I recorded them and then we continued generating some material, I brought percussion and flute to the mix and pure harp. Joel played some mandolin too on a couple of songs. And then Miles played synthesizer on a couple of songs. It is very intentional in that there's not just any instrument can be used in this music. The reason why I wanted to play flute was because is a recorder it's kind of a mixture of recorders and flutes because that's what they were using back in the medieval times. <laughs> but I, I am not trained in playing that, but I play it by ear and add that sound texture, but maybe playing it in a different way than if it were, if it were written music and I was playing it, that would sound different than how it ended up because I'm just playing by ear and making stuff up to go along with the voices because the voice is the first part. I love that. I love that where that meets. You know, we did learn these written and kind of contrived melodies, but then when we all kind of came together, it was like you get that sense of improvisation and playing by ear. I love that. It makes it feel like relatable and, in my opinion, I don't know, real kind of takes the form of the music elsewhere, I think, with the instrumentation and the our backgrounds, where yeah, how we're approaching yeah. the music, I oh, think. Yeah, a blending of those different influences. Yeah, I like that. Y'all wrote three of the songs and then adapted the rest of them from existing melodies and words in some cases? Yeah, so Laura brought to us some music from the Roman du Fauvel, like an old text so the harp of melody and the virtue is dying yeah why do the nations and peoples rage she would just bring us or send us pdfs and <laughs> we would learn the melody and play around with it yeah so what kind of adapting took place was there a lot of conscious consideration as to what your spin was going to be on this or was it unpacking the melodies trying them out I'm interested in the composition process, I guess, of, of how you take something seemingly so removed from, from where we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I guess I should put into context that all of these recordings, since we all lived in separate cities, everything took place over Christmas holiday. <laughs> so we would all come together and we would sing the music, like this is how it sounds. Yeah, it was kind of more of just like an in-the-moment kind of improvisatory practice. One, because we just weren't ever together. <laughs> so it was like, we're here, like, let's think about it now. 
someone would have an idea and be like, what if we just sang this part? Or like, what if we repeated this part over and over and over? Or like, what if we took this note and held it out for a really long time? And then, you know, like improvising on the material that was there. Yeah, we would just write like notes on our manuscript or whatever. And I had all these crazy notes like, oh, like sing verse four this way. And so we would sort of improvise and then recreate a structure. And none of it, at that point, none of it was really written down anymore. It was all in our minds at that point. <laughs> like, this is how we're going to do it now. So, Well, before Joel gets here, let's conspire. Could you speak to kind of the research that you did for this, particularly how the form developed? Yeah. I reached out to Lauren and Joel about doing some kind of project with medieval music and electronics. I want to say it was the same summer I did this music workshop called Amherst Early Music Festival, which is like this really long, like ongoing medieval through Baroque, like early music festival. It happens every year in New Haven, Connecticut. And I was working on these pieces from the Roman de Falvel, which we've taken a lot of our source material from. And there were these, just these really beautiful, like medieval tunes. Um, I was like passingly familiar with them from um, music history class, but it was the first time I'd really spent a lot of time learning to perform some of this music myself. And I just thought the tunes were very interesting and beautiful and also realized how little we know about how these were performed at the time. So at the workshop that led to a lot of things like I collaborated with someone who played a VL, which is like an early violin type medieval instrument. It was a lot of improvisation. It was a lot of me singing this, you know, repeating tune and her improvising stuff. And anyway, I just thought that lent itself really well to contemporary improvisation too. So so I started with a lot of the Ramon de Falvel music. And then it was just kind of like, whatever I happened to bump into, La Harpe de Melody just has a really beautiful score. So like, that's what drew me to it. Some things were just like things I'd heard on albums. Like a lot of the instrumental music was like, dance music from great medieval uh, albums from the 60s that I've like done some research projects on and just like thought, oh, this would be great for silica gel. So I don't know. I've spent time like working on other projects in my sort of more traditional music history route. And I love to like poach little things that I can take back to my freaky friends and, and make freaky, you know. Interesting. Yeah. I'm interested in how how was improvisation working with this music originally, like compared to Bach improvising? Sort of the trend through music history is that like more things get written down the further along through time you, you move and, and more of it survives. So the thing about medieval music is there is a lot of music that was played and, and not written, you know, a, a lot of dance music, for example. There are also things that may have been written down that just you know doesn't survive baroque music does have room for improvisation in the sense that you know you could improvise cadenzas which are kind of like flourishes uh, at the ends of, of phrases there are sort of improvisatory style like say solo harpsichord pieces but th those are often i mean there are things that are, that are like written down and it's like some combination of, of written and improvised. And there's like a certain like style that you're expected to sort of improvise in. And like the tradition is like even more disconnected because it's it's older. So 
To me, the primary difference is just that we know less about what people were doing. Like, for example, we don't have as many accounts of performance practice from theorists, say. Like, by the time you get to Baroque practice, people would write pretty detailed guides as to, like, when you have a passage that looks like this, you can add notes in this way to make it more elaborate. You know, you can do this type of motion here, um, do this, don't do that. And there just aren't those kinds of like explicit performance practice treatises with medieval music. There are treatises on, on theory and things like that. So even in people who are trying to like represent this music in a historically accurate way, which is not what Silica Jaw claims to do at all. I mean, we're, we're a contemporary music group that uses medieval inspiration. But even with people who are trying to be period accurate, there's a lot of variation. And yes, a lot of the music that we have is a single line, you know, or it's written in like chant notation, like plenty of pieces from the Roman de Falvel are just a single line of music written in this really old style of, of chant notation that comes from religious music. And we don't really exactly know like what else would have been going on at the time that the line was being played or, or sung, you know, maybe it's a drone, maybe there's harmony, you know, we don't always know. So it just leaves a lot of open room for adding things. Interesting. Hello, Joel. Hello. Welcome back. Hello, hello. What's going on in old Birmingham? Uh, we're we're doing we're testing. We're didn't you, didn't you, we're testing lots of folks and a bunch of people sick. Don't know <laughs> if you know that. And you got that new surveillance, so you. Oh. Yeah, lots of good stuff. I'm glad you're abreast of that. You're on the up and up. <laughs> hey, the economy. <laughs> development hey. and enterprise you just open the door for all the people that live here to watch you guys so oh great send them here we need fresh blood <laughs> my town is a red zone too right now it's not just bama what color is neoliberalism <laughs> that's that's where we are <laughs> some kind of sick mauve it's a mix of blue and red what, what do you get and green Obvious. Yeah, it's just brown. <laughs> brown. Yeah, a slimy, a mold green. You find it on like a table that you left outside for a year. Or something. Quite right. We're in a pickle, aren't we? This was not intended as an answer to our current time, but evolved into that. I think it's fair to say the material came first, and then the intention was the stew in which it brothed itself. Hmm. I'm interested to know what y'all's opinion is of this after the fact. You, you pleased with it? What do you think of this record? Would you recommend this to Grandma? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm definitely pleased with it, and I would recommend it to Grandma because it happened so organically. I just remember coming uh, back to Birmingham, and it was it 2018? I don't remember. Laura, you were just... I think it was your idea originally, right? I think I just like texted you and Lauren and was like, yeah. Hey, do you guys want to do some electronic medieval stuff, whatever that would look like? And then yeah. brought Jasper on to record and ended up contributing so much of the vision, too. It was very natural because it was all the elements of things that we were doing mm -hmm. anyways with our time. And then I feel like Jasper was the further glue that really put the whole thing together as far as this album is concerned, like where it really came together. But I think that's interesting music from the realm of like improvisation, experimental music. I think that's really how that stuff kind of happens because we didn't sit down with like, this is your part. This is your part. It was all, you know, our own personal 
experiences being smashed together or put in a stew. And mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of seeing the result of this. And then I don't know about the political aspect. I guess, it, again, it seemed natural. I like it, too, because it's not very forced. I don't know. It's not shallow. I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's directly beating you over the head with like, oh, Trump is bad and we've got to get rid of him. And I know people that saw the music video. Some people asked about it and they they wanted to view it. And uh, they were really struck by it. Just the imagery of the statues coming down in Birmingham are more striking. I think it's it's existing in that mystical realm. It's like telling the truth without having to tell the truth or like using representation or symbolism to tell the truth or something. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the Ramon de Falvel was like a super rich place to start from because it, it is an allegory about political and religious corruption. And, you know, it's set in 1300s France. I'm certainly, and we are not the first people to make a connection between the Ramon de Falvel and recent political events because 2017, I want to say, was the 700th anniversary of the publication of the Ramon de Falvel. So there was a lot of sort of not so subtle program notes in in sort of early music groups across the country around that time. So many elements of it are, you know, just continue to be super relevant. There's just this sort of pervading sense of like doom and like, not only that, but sort of just general malaise at the state of the world and like the way that things managed to get this corrupt and, and this bad and just sort of constant feeling of like turn back, turn back throughout the whole piece. And it's not like, it's not naming anyone in particular, you know, it's this magical story of this magical horse and, you know, it's not set anywhere real, but you can totally see parallels and like, it's great that it continues to be relevant. So I think that was a really excellent source to start from. Yeah. It's contemporary, but it almost feels like we're like shouting from a, some like hologram or something that somebody found in a cave. I think very much right now it's there's a feeling of like I mean even if Trump goes and Biden takes over it's there's still that feeling of at least for me that things are not going to get better we're really not heading anywhere right now that's I mean I don't know what's going to happen in the future but that it's going to be very dark I feel like a lot of the songs on on our record feel like ghosts some of the songs are, are I have drone pieces in them Lauren and Laura are singing with and it just feels like there's this constant hopelessness to everything. But that's powerful in a way, because I mentioned shouting. The shouting part is that, well, we still have to live in this world regardless of the hopelessness. And um, I don't know. I feel like we really, really captured that. And, you know, a warning has hope in it. It has to because it acknowledges the potential for turning things around, you know. Right. So it's ominous, but it carries that hope that you can do something different and that you need to do something different. And I think the amazing thing about using contemporary sounds, like all the electronics that we've used is we just have a really broad palette to convey that sort of same sense of doom and like ominousness and, and sort of make, we can make it scary in a way that like translates to contemporary audiences who are, you know, maybe have a different concept of what a scary sound is than medieval people would have had you know which it feels really you know powerful to be able to do that's interesting i have a couple of things from that one is a terribly abstract metaphor and the other one's a question yeah the the idea of sounds being scary to those audiences then is almost by exclusion these are strange sounds we haven't heard before or these are dissonances that are completely alien certain intervals didn't exist in the usage of music then if i'm correct in that 
Or, or they were considered unusual or sort of like grammatically weird. It wasn't typical. Yeah, there were deviations that elicited those feelings. And now, and especially with people that are going to gravitate to this record or be in this kind of part of the musical world, there's not a lot of sound like that that we could... Like, we've all heard harsh noise. We've all heard... We've we've heard it, you know, all of the textures. Now it's... Like, we're not we're not scared by options that we haven't heard before, I guess. So that's the question that I'll circle back around to is, what do you think you ended up wanting to make people feel? By the end of it, what have y'all felt like is the emotion or the emotional content that you're trying to bring out in people? But I want to hedge that in the observation that Joel made about, about the big suck. The big suck runs in a circle. It's a vortex. And we have this maybe false idea that like history, history runs in cycles and we're just going to repeat things. It's like an, an orbit. Uh, you have the earth orbiting the sun and then the moon around the earth. So you have this kind of spiral around a spiral kind of situation. And if you could visualize that, you know. And it seems the more that we look at the problems that we're dealing with, it's like we're progressing in an opening spiral and not a circle. In each pass through this kind of system of problems we're getting more and more removed from direct reality in a symbolic kind of way, the Baudrillard kind of sense, like a simulation kind of sense. Like the introduction of, of land ownership didn't exist at one point, and the concept of money as a signifier for value that could be abstracted. Like, oh, we, we've gone through all of these abstractions of these problems, so there are all these kind of opaque recurrences <laughs> almost like parameters that you we're... think that that's a product of of the internet that everything has become more opaque is that kind of what you're i think that's a development of this process of this obfuscation of reality if you picture the mobius strip that is archetypal human existence you know all of the things that are fundamental facts like the physicality of our lives and how we have to depend on the planet no matter how far removed we can get from that, like we have to deal with matter and that's the wall, the image on the wall that you're observing as you go around in the circle, around this vortex. But it's almost like the processes that we're living through as technology develops, as capitalism has matured and started to break down, as the, the witch burnings removed medicine from women. We keep going through all of these processes that are further that are laying down glass on every pass that we make around. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Like you're putting up frosted glass as you go around. You mean, do you mean the glass is like like specter of history that we have to deal with? It's our abstraction from that. Like we keep adding down all these layers of symbol until we're not seeing that image on the outside. Like each of those passes are the details, you know, or the specific layers of distance we're being put through or that we've put that are being imposed between us and the actual world. And this is almost like hearing all of that mist drop away. It's archetypal in summation, like the conflict rings out through it, but it's not pointed at any details that are prescient to us because the distance to reality is the same. You know what I mean? Can I give an example that maybe brought that? Yes. I think I understand <laughs> the concept you're bringing up. I remember I had a moment one summer where I think it might have been when I lived with Lauren for a sec and we kept getting like bugs in the house, you know, because we would leave the doors and windows open a lot of the time. And at first I was like mad about it. But then I was like, I can't expect to not live with like things that live here. You know what I mean? Like they didn't ask for this house to be built. 
maybe maybe in like a much larger sense you're saying that like we keep building a thicker and thicker house you know and we're like still in the woods but it's harder to like acknowledge i don't know we're still in the same environment that people who lived off the land did you know hundreds and hundreds of years ago but we've got all these layers of stuff that's been built that we just have to contend with whether we ask for it to be built or not and some of it's good and some of it's bad and all of it's disorienting you know yeah yeah and i like thinking about that in context of of this music too which is kind of what brings out like when you were saying about the roman de favel is this allegory for political and religious corruption and it's just it's just reinvented <laughs> like that's all it is it's the same shit but reinvented and like the things that we're doing as a society like and that's kind of like the doom i think that you see this was happening years and years and years ago. It's kind of cool to hear that in the music. You mentioned abstraction, and it, and it literally in our lives. Do you not think the internet has, has done that? That we further abstracted ourselves from those bugs on the floor that were coming into your house? You, know, you can experience everything all the time to such a degree that you can't experience it. You can't search everything, but it's all happening all at once. Like there's so much happening that we're aware of now on the internet that you can't even keep up with it. So it's happening faster and faster. And we're experiencing a level of abstraction that's literally coming into our lives that we don't know what to do with yet. How can we translate that to our audience in the music? I would like to believe so. It certainly feels like we do. <laughs> at least I like to think so. And I'm listening to it. Yeah. It's a thoroughly modern experience, but it is so grounded in those in this kind of archetypal, I don't know, wordless moaning. The internet, I think the most current example we have of that mechanism at work, I don't know if it, it would be cheap to call it a symptom, but it would be imprudent to call it the cause. It's, I think it's similar to how um, like bankers didn't exist at one point the mass eviction of peasants kind of led down the line to the existence of bankers where they didn't exist before. And now you have economics where that is the banker's playground for manipulation or for obfuscation. That's like the temple where the dark magic of separating us from essence happens in part. So I think the internet is kind of similar to that. So yes, I agree with you in that sense of for and in itself, it's not that, but it serves that way. Like the internet itself, just the pure internet, I maybe I should clarify, is not the evil or the abstraction that we're experiencing that's maybe very dissonant. It's the Wizard of Oz thing. It's like the person, the wizard behind the veil. Who Who is behind the veil? And I think a lot of like that video that you made, Jasper, is, is kind of hinting at that. It's like pulling back the veil and seeing the, the wizard guy behind it and when you pull that back as we're seeing more and more i mean tech more and more is running into you mentioned the banker and economics especially american economics is running directly into authoritarian kind of regimes and ideas i mean surveillance is a, a great example of that we're dealing with that now and it's really a matter of like who's pulling the levers of society i think that where, where we experience that distance is coloring it more i'm not saying they completely control everything I like that. I think that is the thing that, you know, the sort of hopelessness of things that that gives me hope that it like it does feel like really dirty, like gross, but it's like pulling up this nasty, like 
layer and you're like, oh, wait, that's underneath. Seeing that is powerful. Seeing that veil being lifted, even though it's disgusting underneath. Yeah. I'm just going to bring up that uh, Falvel, the name of the evil force that takes over the kingdom, his name is a play on words meaning false veil. Oh, yeah. No idea. No, I was talking. That's awesome. Because the point is almost like a darker emperor's new clothes kind of thing. It's like everybody just kind of goes with it, you know? Yeah. Like they see the horse running the kingdom and they're like, I guess this is fine and proceed to like pledge their loyalty to him. And like, it's first of all insane that he's running. And second of all, he's, he's like evil. Keep ripping back the veil. It happens constantly. And yet, I don't know if this happened, like you said, in the story, people keep running back to the king, the capitalism, whatever you want to call it, to wanting our lives to go back to normal, even with this pandemic going on. We don't really, as a society, necessarily want to change. Because everything's falling apart, but we want everything to go back to normal. But it really can't because we don't live in that world anymore. It's all changed now, but we're going to try to make it normal. So we're going to give ourselves to whatever authority that replaces that, Amazon, whatever, the tech world, so we can have some sense of normalcy. And you can see this happening. To try to recapitulate our musing up to this point, the primal terror of someone from maybe this period from the 12th century showing up here and trying to understand, they would not be able to comprehend. And it's the whole, if you brought Thomas Edison back to try to fix the power grid, you'd have to explain so much. What would the founding fathers think of, you couldn't possibly catch someone up well enough to, to be able to understand. And But the feeling of wrongness that would be immediate would be so traumatizing. And I guess that's what culture shock is. Our whole culture is in shock. It's almost as though we're continuously trying to catch up to how the world has changed while not understanding how deviant it is, all those layers that are in place. Constant renavigation. Yes. Hotelism. Earth Hotel, man. Yeah. What flavor of scary do you think this is? Or maybe what kind of... It makes me think about the work that I've done before where I knew my intention was to unnerve. It wasn't to be spooky, ooh, scary sounds. It was more to just be un- unsettling. So I guess I guess the question that I want to ultimately ground this in is, like you said, Joel, the internet, we're constantly bombarded with information and living within information that cannot be integrated. You said aware of it. From 4chan to whatever the enlightened part of the internet is, we are going through this haphazardly chewing through all of this information and trying to it's this frantic mass bringing up of all of this unconscious content something something we pass from magic to religion to science and then we do it again it's like we cannot possibly consciously handle what all that we are being exposed to it's still in us like even if it's not engaged and processed and conscious it is still unconscious that scream, this tension that we're all feeling is more than just my, where, what is my place in this situation? I can't understand. It's, we're getting close to the center of that whirlpool and the forces are increasing. The speed is increasing and we don't know what point we're being drawn towards. It's like the feeling of being out at sea. If you've ever been like really, you're far from land to where, you know, if you got off this boat, you would not survive. It's that kind of 
pale blue dot feeling of, I don't know where I am, but I know where that is, is so far from what I know. And the what I know is that primal nature on the outside of the circle. Has, has that brought that whole unwieldy metaphor into some kind of usefulness? Yeah. You know, all of that tension is going to come out some way or another. And I think it's what we do as artists and musicians is try to channel all those feelings through a human perspective and a, a human voice. And I think the recentering of voice is what is important to this with Laura and Lauren being like the voice of all of that despair, but trying to hold on to beauty despite all that. So the the voice is so important to um, acknowledge everything and and bring it to an emotional perspective and, uh, and an emotional intelligence. Just to add to that, I, I think we're getting to something primal, and I think that's, like you said, even using the voice and language and how important that is to connect us. So much of everything that adds to this dread is that we're so divided. I think what we're trying to simply get at is this, it's, it's almost naive in a way uh, of just acknowledging that we are here and you are there and we are together in this. You know, we might be all be at sea and we can't see the land and we know if we jump in the water, we will most definitely die. But at the very least, we can be together. And I think that's very, very important right now to know that we are all connected and together in this. Fighting, combating that artificial idea of community and really finding community <laughs> really being with people communicating with people and i think that's what we're shouting to some degree in the record i think we are still human here no matter how abstracted artificial or whatever yeah, yeah. the whole album starts off with uh dancing basically like the sound of dancing i will say i do think there is an element of the way that we use technology could be a little bit complicated or, or ironic in the sense that, like, I do think the the purpose of this, of, of the scariness, of the unsettlingness is to, yeah, really capture and convey and communicate that just universal sense of, like, things are rough. There's this, like, cosmic level of just stress that it's it's hard to explain in words. Part of what we use to get the sort of terror of that across is electronics. So I, I think that is also interesting. It's not purely about like human good technology bad. It's like, how do we use this tool that we didn't really ask <laughs> to be relevant? You know, how do we use that to still communicate I mean, human feelings? Interesting that you bring that up because I'm playing electronics most of the time. Ever since I went to Mills, I've had a weird relationship with like electronic music, especially mm -hmm. laptop music. And I, at first, I completely hated it because it was such a, like, like you're saying, it was, like, worshipped to a level of, like, this is good and this is going to bring us to utopia. And this music is utopian in itself. Like, it's better than regular music. And I've always had suspicion of that idea. And um, I don't know if I was looking for a way into that world of electronic music, but um, it took a very long time for me to be okay with it. So, you know, us playing together... I wanted us playing together and my instrument, which is electronics had to be that, you know, when we're playing, I've set the computer up in a way where I'm literally playing with Lauren and Laura. I mean, they're, they're giving me their voices to let me have a voice. So there's a relationship there because I can't sing. I can't <laughs> sing like them. 
we're holding each other's hand in hand and helping each other. There's a level of empathy there, I think. I hope. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm just making that up. But I, that's what I'm trying to play at when we, when we play these electronics, that literally there's another voice being made. You're not just programming things ahead of time. You're exactly. res- responding to them as it happens. It's improvisation, and that's how I want to approach it's subconscious sound in a way because it's done in the moment. That sound doesn't exist as an object. It only exists as practiced impulse. Exactly. Form it, right? It's almost like a ritualistic practice of shooting something through that gap and all that glass that Simone de Beauvoir quote is like, I recognize that I'm different from the sea or the wind, but those things seek to express themselves through me. That's the value of my human existence. Maybe it's not a specific feeling you could call a feeling that y'all are getting at or that comes across in this. It's just the opening of the throat of that non-human voice and whatever tension comes out of that, whatever, just like any emotional effect you might have by hearing someone sing mournfully. The voices and the instruments that have object with them are the hands that have to extend through meaning to form that chain with that inhuman thing. It's the participation of the human that allows the inhuman to give voice to something, right? What you're trying to get across and, and the way it's put together is is not sterile, clean, but it is so clear and while being so removed from what we think of as modern things. Yeah, I think we could have taken a, a much cheaper approach to the use of electronics and I mean, cheap in sort of like a emotional or, or artistic sense and this is the doom. This is the bad thing. And then when we sing, like that's human existence and human feeling breaking through. But instead, I think, you know, it's it's kind of like acknowledging that like you're sort of stuck in this matrix of like weird human built things and traditions and history, whether you want to be or not. And you can kind of turn that in on itself and say, how can I use this? Joel's sounds are, are not just the oppressor it's also like the catharsis of like you know saying like i have to move through this like i have to exist in this and so it's kind of like yeah i i think it's a really interesting way of like folding that angst in on itself yes yeah like we can harness electricity and technology also yeah right doesn't have to be all dystopian and maybe that's the hope we're trying to get to there is a way to go hand in hand with these things and you don't have to completely destroy the earth in in order to accomplish whatever you're trying to accomplish individually by yourself that no we can do these things hand in hand yeah it's a capitalist lie darn it It, it's 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 just an inaccuracy because yeah we could have like everybody could be clothed and housed and interconnected and communicated and educated with zero impact to the planet it's just not the capitalist way to do that you know the machines were supposed to liberate us from having to work fields by hand and make clothes by hand and all these things that why would you want to go back to looms now that we have machines that can do it let's just not throw kids into the machines can we just agree no okay we got a riot for that okay yeah what y'all were talking about the synthesis and how all that can speak together we can move through this the muck is new and very old and we need the synthesis of new and and old voices to call out through it which is why i love this record so much so very much i was gonna say i was thinking about the emotional angle of the music and 
how it's trying to speak to something more primal. And for me, that works because it's in another language for the most part. So I'm I'm only getting the the emotional side when I'm listening to it. I can kind of like follow the words a little bit, but I like that this is at least right now it's it's for like an English speaking audience, like the people that we know. I mean it's for people in America, but it's mostly in French and but it's very important to me that the titles are in English so that people can know like what the context is. And even if they don't understand it completely, like if they just read the titles that can give them something of what it's about. There's a couple instrumental pieces, but their titles are still important because that adds some, some level of meaning and context to what the, they are abstractly saying just musically. And I liked what you were saying about the, it's like we're trying to achieve a clarity. It's funny because the record itself, the physical record is clear. It's clear. It's like a, the pane of glass you were talking about. And it's a spiral. It's a vortex. Yeah. Huh. I mean, I did, I just go there all the time. You know, I, I mean, I know that's just, it's just a record, but we were talking about vortexes and this is a vortex and us trying to navigate a vortex. Um, so I think those things are important. Um, in an elemental way, yeah. and um, also that the name is silica gel, which references technology. And that, I don't think that was the intention at first. It was maybe a little bit more random, but silica gel. I mean, that talks about Silicon Valley and about the silicon in our devices, and <clears throat> that it's a uh, preservative. That keeps the water out. Children, my children. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's all these references. So I just hope that like people can pick up on that. Yeah, I feel like this band has been a long time coming. <laughs> I mean, the band named Silica Gel Do Not Eat. How long, Laura? How long have you been talking about that should be a band name? I mean, it's, it could be five plus years. I mean, yeah. Because I, 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 I originally told Lauren, I was like, if I ever have a band, it's going to be called Silica Gel Do Not Eat. We started like collecting little packets of silica gel like early on. We still kind of do that. Like I think we all, I don't know about you guys. I, I have a little collection of silica gel packets. Store them in your cheek for if they catch you. Something, something, eat this in remembrance of me. There's a sequel there somewhere. Just let that cook. The mysteries of the whole thing, uh, the capital M, and I like that the point you made about languages. I don't remember the original Elvish, but it's it's like there one language cannot be enough. I'm sure that was a human expression before somebody translated into Tolkien Elvish, but the way in is not is not obvious. The terror that you're supposed to feel is not it's not rage against the machine, you know what I mean? It's like what the fuck is this machine? I'm scared of life. <laughs> Enjoy. Was there consideration to pointing the emotional content somewhere? Or did that just come out of what the music became? I think it was there the whole time, right? Laura, I mean, the songs out originally, right? Were those songs originally political? Yeah, a lot of them were. Not all of them. And I will say that I, I don't think every single song on this album is explicitly political. I think there are moments that are much more about sort of the interpersonal. But I mean, it's all like... It's like a life. I mean, it's all interlaced and, and doom you feel about one area could be echoed by smaller doom you feel about, you know, 
a relationship or a friendship or, or anything. So the main thing that I will say guided me is, is that I, I knew I wanted to have moments of just beauty that you didn't have to contextualize, just sort of like that sort of like naked, like anyone could listen to this and think that's really beautiful, sort of like in the Joni Mitchell kind of way. And it happened by accident again, too, because, I mean, I was just playing sign tones. We were practicing in Andrea Dillingham's house, and I didn't even realize, like, that that's some of the, like, purest tone you can make is just a sign tone. It's very pure. There's no other partials or anything in that tone. And then with Lauren and Laura's voice singing against it, it was, like, haunting. It was, like, weird. And then, and if they sang a dissonance, you know, it would get into the tone, and you would hear that, like, wobble. You could hear that in some of the recordings. And then I would be recording that, too. So we'd be playing back, and you get these nice, like, beating patterns of the tones and stuff. And it just was like, wow, this is expressing exactly what I was feeling at the time. And then that interplay with actually recording their voices, like you said, Laura, it, it is. It's like this push and pull of beauty and angst and disgust and sadness all mixed into one. And then I think, too, with Jasper, you started coming up with ideas of like adding more rhythmic elements and it feels more ritualistic in a way. Put it in a completely different context, too, that I really like. I mean, it, it was a folk context. I mean, we literally sing folk songs in some of the tracks. And in one of the seasonal seances you released, literally sing folk songs mixed with these old songs it all grasps at an emotional feeling that i think we are feeling what do you think jasper i never actually asked you about why did you decide to add american folk songs onto these traditional songs with electronics which one specifically uh the uh, cuckoo song that was the summer seance wasn't it yeah i don't know where that originated is it an old english song yeah, it's an old English song. So that's like a thousand years old, probably. And we combined it with something that's hard to trace, but like another cuckoo song that is more based in like American blues and folk music here. So combining like the old world and new world version of the same song into one thing. And it need must be remarked that the cuckoo is supplantation by an outsider. Yeah, so the song references the 4th of July, and um, people came to this country and made their nest in a place that was already someone else's home. Yeah, and I think it plays with that sort of like, what do we do now feeling? I work at an art museum, and it's a lovely place, and everyone who works there is very lovely and good and has good ideas, and you know, you just can't get away from knowing that you're sort of living on stolen ground and I think that's part of the angst is like how much can I do you know and trying to grapple with that you know being in some way like part of what's wrong with everything you know gotta live in the hotel that's the only way back is to where you can find and pay respect to what was there before you because nothing else is holding that together except the intention of doing that one of the original 10 instigators of the French Resistance. She was an art historian. She worked at a gallery, published Resistance, and helped organize what became the French Resistance. Agnès Humbert, she wrote a memoir called Resistance. And when the Germans invaded, when they got to Paris, she looked around at all of her colleagues and went, okay, we have to do something now. We'll all go to prison and most of us will be shot, but what else are we going to do? Because our connection to older things is, is going to be destroyed if we don't. The connection to everything that we've cared about. Are we going to be colonized? Is our history going to be thrown out? Um, and they were all 
either socialists or anarchists or somewhere further left where they were already active. But that was that's significant to me that you're so strong in doing this work. I mean, all of you are noble in this act, but I just wanted to give you the, the credit of being where you are. So those are my closing thoughts. Good record. Good job, everybody. Let's do it again sometime. I'll just say it's been a pleasure from start to finish. You know, we've had some very exhausting sessions, but I have enjoyed it the whole way through, you know? Yeah, no, I feel the same way. I don't know. It was enjoyable to like have a idea and a direction in mind and just work on it and just hammer it out. It feels good to do that type of work, especially with people who I know and enjoy working with, but also we have an idea in mind. Yeah, working from a strong concept from the beginning, I think has helped to develop and become richer the more we delve into why we're using these type of instruments and why we're using these type of songs. And I think there's a lot more that we can do. I mean, I couldn't do what anyone else in this group could do, and they would probably say the same thing. You know, it's like we all have just completely different sets of skills, so it's neat to, to be able to bring those together i'll close with this thought there are things like this that are very small groups of like-minded friends working toward a creative epic just to try to create something as best as they can in good faith and then you have the movie cats that cost 260 million dollars to fail a further down aspect you've got the lord of the rings films which are both of those things thousands and thousands of people doing top-notch work to bring about a creative mission. They, you know, Peter Jackson said, this isn't my movie or our movie. This is Tolkien's movie. And everybody here is motivated like this. Everybody pretend in this work that we're making a historical film and doing justice by that. Somewhere in that spectrum, I'm pretty sure we could run communities efficiently with the kind of, with cat's money. Give the people cat's money. And there is no doubt that we can organize it so that it makes everybody happier and more fulfilled people. Casilla Gel did it, and goddamn Taylor Swift couldn't do it. So, good night, everybody. <laughs> Go vote at your fucking city council meetings and know what they're talking about. Let's let's do this again, shall we? <laughs>
offerings of local music come thus unto you this eve from other friends of improvisation and or Montevallo scoops. Arabata is John Albee, a corroborator of myself and Joel, and a feature coming soon to the show. He snuck a sleeper hit on us called Elephant Race, which came out in October, and you'll hear this song from that called MCAT. You can find that on Earth Library's records in Birmingham. Similar-wise, Birmingham's sole planter and frequenter of improvised sound is Johnny Coley, whose spoken word Freakout Journey debut is being reissued by Jasper at Sweet Wreath, and we'd like to talk to him in the future also. We'll play his Teenage Lipstick Horses from that album Diffuse Suspense, coming out in February. Penultimately, we'll send the past a thank you with a collective performance of a graphic score by Joel, a mixture of souls called Liquid Architecture, which includes all the people here and myself. Customarily, we'll leave you adrift with an Earth Hotel propaganda suite, an A-B side of ill word spooling, with a tout de coucou tarçon, followed by variations with a mask. We thank you for joining us again, and we want to thank Substrate Radio for backing us and continuing to put out our material. More to come. I'll never really go away. Good night, dear friends.
stopped here, we got some fresh cucumbers. We stopped here, we got some fresh tomatoes. We stopped here, we got some fresh green beans. We stopped here, we got some fresh okra. We stopped here, we got a basket of peaches. We stopped here, we got a case of beer. We stopped here, we got firecrackers and sparklers. We stopped here, we got cherry bombs. We stopped here, we got cotton candy. So when we got there, they said, well, y'all brought some good shit. Y'all brought peaches. Y'all brought string beans. Y'all brought cucumbers. Y'all brought avocados. Y'all brought cotton candy. Y'all brought cherry bombs. Y'all brought a case of beer. And look here, we've got a horse. They said, we got a horse here. We got some other horses out there in that field. None of those horses ever had a peach in their lives. Ain't one of them horses ever eaten a peach. They don't like the fuzz. So we were riding the horses. Throwing the cherry bombs. That made those horses jump. That was some jumping horses. Those horses could jump. On the way back, we stopped and we went to a movie. It was full of teenagers. The whole movie theater was full of teenagers. They all had on tight blue jeans. They all had on halter tops. They all had on lipstick. Even the boys had on lipstick. It was one of those little towns where all the teenagers wear lipstick. After we got cucumbers, we stopped and we got tomatoes. We stopped and we got peaches.
are the pictures of the president's rally there on Saturday night. Tens of thousands of people came. So many people that the crowd obscured the horizon. Look like a visit from the Pope. When was the last time a political speech drew that many people? Why did all of those people come? Why? They must have known that Bosch is the most evil man who's ever lived. Why exactly did they do that? Millions of Americans sincerely love Ashwanath. In spite of everything they've heard, they love him often in spite of himself. They know exactly who Ashwanath is. They love him anyway, because no one else loves them. Mocked and despised by the sneering half-wits with finance degrees, but no actual skills, who seem to run everything all of a sudden. Whatever Bush was false, he is better than the rest of the people in charge. At least he doesn't hate them for their weakness. Much more often in other words, is and has always been a living indictment of the people who run this country. That was true four years ago, when Russia came out of nowhere to win the presidency, and it's every bit as true right now. Maybe even more true than it's ever been. And it will remain true, regardless of whether Mashwad wins re-election. Because they failed. It's as simple as that. If the people in charge had done a halfway decent job with the country they had inherited, if they cared about anything other than themselves, even for just a moment, Donald Trump would still be hosting Celebrity Apprentice. And narcissistic and cruel and relentlessly dishonest. They wrecked what they didn't build, they lied about it.